Hello, friends and enemies. Welcome to the Old Movie Lady podcast. I am your host, the titular Old Movie Lady, but you can also call me Marg. This is episode 25 of my series, The Wampus Frolic. Join me as I explore the lives, careers, and public personas of a group of dreamers, of stars to be and stars that weren't, the Wampus Baby Stars. I have the teensiest bit of housekeeping to do before we dive right in. I want to give my sincerest apology for no new episode last week, but I was under the weather. I'm all better, but I have decided to release the next few episodes, at least, bi-weekly, so that I can get my razzle-dazzle back. Thank you so much in advance for your patience and your continued support. This is an entirely independently produced podcast, so it means a lot, and I couldn't do it without you. Okay, it's 1929 Part 2, and we have no time to waste with the rest of the selections for the Western Association of Motion Picture Advertisers 1929 Baby Stars list. Are you ready? You're still listening, so presumably you are. Doris Hill Doris Hill, first christened Roberta, arrived in Hollywood in late 1925 at around 20 years old. An experienced dancer, she performed at the Metropolitan Theater, was spotted by a casting director, given a screen test, and signed with Warner Brothers by the end of January 1926. A personality entirely new to the screen will appear in the lineup of Warner Brothers Stock Company next season in Doris Hill, a newcomer to a picture studio who has never faced a camera and who has been signed by Jack Warner solely on her beauty, intelligence, striking type for pictures, and her natural promise of development, reported the moving picture world. They continued to say, Her screen tests have been exceptional and the Warners have placed her under a five-year contract with the belief that she will develop into another Dolores Costello. In early 1926, Dolores Costello was barely Dolores Costello, but okay. Doris's first picture was a loan-out to Robertson Cole for a nothing western, but her second picture was Warner Brothers' second Vitaphone soundtrack film, The Better Ole, starring Sid Chaplin. I spoke very briefly about the better ole in episode 18, The Pitcher Speaks, as it was accompanied by a collection of shorts that included full lines of dialogue. The film did well, but Doris didn't really make an impact in her small role, and she was soon freelancing for low-budget studios like Tiffany Stahl. In 1927, Paramount picked her up, eager to bolster their roster of bright young things, flappers, that is, though Doris wasn't one of their wilder young ladies. They gave Doris her biggest opportunity yet in support of Clara Bow, one of their wilder young ladies, in Rough House Rosie. Doris Hill as the girlfriend is as demure as Clara is wild, but somehow Doris stands out, wrote Screenland. After a hectic evening with Rough House Rosie, you may feel like there's something to be said for nice, quiet home girls and a whole lot to be done for him. Paramount used Doris steadily in supporting roles for the next while. 
She appeared in a few studio publicity photo shoots, though nothing compared to the rigmarole that MGM put their starlets through. There is a funny spread in Photoplay's April 1927 issue called From Ping Pong to Pants, featuring Doris and a contract player called Anne Sheridan. Not THE Anne Sheridan, as she only would have been 12 years old. It's a juxtaposition between the girls of 1927, as represented by Doris, and the girls of 1902, as represented by Anne, complete with spirit Halloween-quality costumes. Miss 1927 romps in the gym. Miss 1902 considered ping-pong a hectic sport. Throughout 1928, Doris worked steadily, and the general consensus among reviewers seems to be that she was good enough to be given more to do. Doris Hill languishes in the role of the sister, said one review of Take Me Home, starring Bebe Daniels. Then there is Doris Hill, said Screenland in a February 1929 piece called New Ladies for the Hollywood Lovers. Five feet, two and a half inches of Titian-haired, blue-eyed loveliness, Doris has arrived as Jack Holt's leading lady in Avalanche. Avalanche, released in late 1928, was a silent western. Not a terribly important film in the scope of things, but it did coincide with a contract renewal with Paramount and the promise of future star billing, all of which led to Doris's inclusion on the Wampus Baby Stars list of 1929. Talkies Smile on Doris, announced Pitcher Play in the November 1929 edition. Little by little, Doris Hill is fighting her way up the trail to fame, and talkies are bringing her more good luck than silence did. She started in a bit as a flower girl in interference, and is now doing her first genuine lead in The Children. The studio murder mystery helped a little, but the new picture, adapted from the Edith Wharton novel, promises to be the most auspicious yet. Frederick March is the male lead. I actually don't know what on earth picture play is talking about, as I can find no record of a film called Interference except for Paramount's 1929 film of that name, but Doris wasn't in that, nor would any film in 1928 be considered where she started. Get your act together, picture play. They were right that the studio murder mystery helped her profile, and that Doris was all set to star in an adaptation of Edith Wharton's novel, but she was replaced in the film by Wampus Baby Star of 1926, Mary Bryan. Instead, Doris was loaned out to MGM to appear in a supporting role in His Glorious Night. This notorious film was star John Gilbert's first released talkie, one that Hollywood legend puts as being the film that demolished his career, either because of his so-called unmanly voice, or perhaps at the direct orders of Louis B. Mayer to have his voice intentionally distorted to cause ridicule. Of course, that's all rumor, but at the bare minimum, His Glorious Night was a bad film, and one that didn't help Doris's career at all. Not much did help her career, as turns out. Released from her Paramount contract, Doris would go on to spend the next few years as a leading lady in Western after Western, before making her final film in 1934. 
Doris never did develop into another Dolores Costello, and while her bad luck in 1929, being moved from one solid film to the mess that was his glorious night, may have played an unfortunate part in that, a newspaper article about her divorce proceedings from her first husband offers up another explanation. Red-headed Doris Hill, famous as the only movie actress in history to own a genuine inferiority complex, at least thinks that she's too good for somebody, snidely wrote the 1933 article, that somebody is her husband, George L. Derrick, local businessman. They go on to say that while everyone who has ever worked with Doris thought she was the sweetest, she was also shy and never confident in her own ability. Perhaps Doris just never had the confidence to fight for better roles. Maybe she thought the damsel in a western was the best that she could do. But whatever the reason, Doris Hill was never a star. Josephine Dunn The Paramount Picture School is our answer to the demand for new faces and to the cry for opportunity on the part of those who want to break in, said Paramount Famous Players President Jesse Lasky in 1926. It was a studio-arranged acting program, the first of its kind. 40,000 hopefuls applied that first year, and after headshots were examined, screen tests were executed, interviews were conducted, and tuition was paid, 16 students made up the inaugural class. Charles Buddy Rogers and Thelma Todd were among them, as was Josephine Dunn. Born on May 1, 1906 in New York, Mary Josephine Dunn got her start as a Broadway chorus girl when she was only in her mid-teens, then later joined the Ziegfeld Follies. According to her official Paramount Picture School biography, she didn't actually have to go through the vigorous application process. No, Josephine was just visiting the Paramount lot with a pal, and she was so cute and blonde that she attracted attention and that won her a place in the school. Everyone in the program got to make up the cast of Fascinating Youth. Buddy got to be the star, proving, I suppose, that the studio did successfully identify its most promising male player. Photoplay agreed, assessing the class's top prospects as Buddy Rogers, Charles Brokaw, who did have a long career predominantly on stage, and Josephine. In the home-wrecking category, Josephine Dunn of New York and 18 Summers may with time and with careful training make a niche for herself in films. She has allure and grace, and very promising ocular, if not emotional, control. An encouraging note in her work is the glimmering of a latent comic sense, hypodermic humor that gets under one's skin, so rare an attribute in moviedom today that a bare suspicion thereof warrants microscopic analysis. If gentlemen do indeed prefer blondes, the fair Josephine may yet go far on the wings of a screen type. Plenty of people were skeptical of the Paramount Picture School's ability to form the stars of tomorrow. With pretty good reason, especially after Fascinating Youth, a winter sports comedy came and went without much fanfare, and the majority of Josephine's classmates disappearing similarly. 
Lots of people laughed at the Paramount School and prophesied that its graduates would never amount to much, wrote Picture Play in their April 1927 edition. But Josephine Dunn has thrown the laugh back at them. She, one of the maligned graduates, has the feminine lead in Love's Great Mistake. Love's Greatest Mistake, in which Josephine was actually fourth-billed after Wampa's baby star of 1923, Evelyn Brent, William Powell, and James Hall, did give her a substantial role. Reviews were mixed, and Josephine's part was no exception. While moving picture world commended her for being beautiful and intelligent, motion picture said, Love's Greatest Mistake suffers from its cast, for they attempted to hang the picture on the quite inadequate, though very pretty, shoulders of Miss Josephine Dunn, late of the Paramount School. Miss Dunn tries hard, but there's a vast difference between a cute girl and a good trooper, as Evelyn Brent's performance so clearly proves. Paramount seemed to learn its lesson about hanging the whole picture on Josephine's shoulder this early on, and used her instead in a string of supporting roles throughout 1927, including Fireman Save My Child with Wallace Beery, Swim Girl Swim and She's a Sheik with Bebe Daniels, and Get Your Man with Clara Bow and Buddy Rogers, her Paramount School Pictures classmate. It was around this time that Josephine's name started getting tossed around for the coveted role of Lorelai Lee in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. On paper, she made an ideal candidate, being blonde and young with a knack for comedy. But the role went to Wampus Baby Star of 1928, Ruth Taylor, instead. Towards the end of 1927, more bad news came Josephine's way, which was that Paramount would not be renewing her contract. She thought she was done, punnily read a headline in Motion Picture Magazine's December 1928 issue. Josephine got fired with ambition and then fired from the studio. Of course, they were writing about her at all because she had been very quickly picked up by MGM, the true masters of publicity, especially for their starlets. For six months, Motion Picture continued, she wandered in and out of various Poverty Row productions. Now and then some comedy engaged her for a small part in support of a Western star or something like that. But it looked like Josephine Dunn's day had come and gone. Then the telephone rang. It was MGM. They said they wanted to test her for the leading role opposite William Haynes in Excess Baggage, and would she come out immediately? You might have thought she would have been excited and glad, but she wasn't. She was cynical. She figured there must be a catch in it somewhere. You can imagine her embarrassment when she landed the part. Next, she was borrowed by Warner Brothers to appear with blackface performer Al Jolson in his jazz singer follow-up, The Singing Fool. It had considerably more talking than the first film and was a big old racist hit. This meant that going into 1929 and her appearance on the Wampus Baby Stars list, Josephine had substantial momentum behind her. MGM put her to work, both on the home lot and loan outs, and she was extremely busy that year with 10 films released. 
Those included another as Billy Haynes's leading lady, a man's man, and her first starring role in Black Magic. The Hollywood Filmgraph called her performance apathetic and amateurish, and Harrison's report said, This picture is terrible! Luckily, Josephine was also in Our Modern Maidens that year with Joan Crawford and Anita Page, Wampus Baby Stars of 1926 and 1929, respectively. It was Joan's film, though, through and through. But Motion Picture News pointed out that the rest of the young cast were all excellent. She didn't have a breakout role or anything, but it was another boost in her profile. Other things boosting her profile were the plentiful MGM-arranged photo shoots and her name being dropped in fan magazine articles like this one from Photoplay. Hollywood, a manless town. The piece laments the dearth of eligible young men for all the vast numbers of beautiful young actresses to date. The social prospects were dire, insisted writer Catherine Albert. Even the most charming women were stuck, boyfriendless, and alone. The horror! She writes, You might think that the situation doesn't exist. You might accuse me of making this up just to amuse myself. I assure you that it doesn't amuse me. Haven't I heard Josephine Dunn cry to the heavens for a steady flame? You can't build a career in sporadically appearing in fan magazines, though. And while Josephine worked a lot over the next year, she wasn't really progressing. Part of the issue may have been, well, not that she was actually bad, but that she wasn't necessarily very good at playing anything except then less than sympathetic characters. The other woman, the haughty stuck-up one for our heroine to compete against. Her voice may have also played a role, both in keeping her typecast and keeping her career down. As Pitcher Play put it in the January 1930 issue, Josephine Dunn, whose good looks are evident, but whose voice is more suited to backstage roles. MGM decided to cut their losses in early 1930 and let Josephine go. As a freelancer, she made only three films that year, supporting roles in Safety in Numbers back at Paramount and Madonna of the Streets at Columbia and a rare starring vehicle in the pre-code Poverty Road drama Second Husband, where she played a dissatisfied wife who tricks her husband into thinking that she's cheating on him. She also did Air Police, 1931, for Sono Art Worldwide Pictures, whatever the hell that was. They advertised their lineup as being Thrillodramas, and promised lots of action and explosions and makeouts and not too much talking. Bottom barrel stuff. Well, pretty blonde Josephine is undone these days, and here's the cause of it all, wrote Silver Screen in 1931. His name is Clyde E. Greathouse. He's a Los Angeles oil operator, and he and Little Joe signed each other up for life in early January. At least, we hope it's for life. People were surprised when she announced the marriage that, in fact, she had had an earlier short-lived union before she came to Hollywood. This union was also short-lived. As is prone to happening, Josephine's personal life was getting more attention than her professional one. As Photoplay reported in their September 1931 issue, 
Josephine Dunn recently sued for divorce by hubby Clyde, oil heir, Great House, on charges that she clawed him and called him bad names, files a cross-complaint. She says that in their four months of marriage, he bought her only one pair of hose and one jar of cold cream and bowled her out for not getting work in pitchers. Josephine Dunn, former featured player, has to go to work again, said Silver Screen's October edition that year. Josie quit pitchers upon marrying Clyde Greathouse, but the marriage didn't take. She got a divorce and $75 per month alimony, which, as you know, isn't enough to keep the pretty player in the silk stockings. Photoplay added in December, Josephine Dunn goes into court and has her divorced hubby, Clyde Greathouse, sent to jail for non-payment of alimony. Apparently he ended up serving three days. In 1932, she did several films, almost always in supporting roles, with the odd, extremely low-budget independent peppered in where she could thanklessly play the lead to no notice or acclaim. Some of her smaller roles did get noticed at this time, actually, revealing a real comedic talent. Like in Two Kinds of Women, where, as International Photographer magazine explained, has a comical role as a speechless and almost lifeless drunk who walks like an automaton when adequately supported. But it wasn't enough to get her bigger or better things. She left Hollywood for Broadway and met Eugene J. Lewis, resulting in this excellent headline from the Daily News in early 1933. Josephine Dunn speaking, I'm married again! Third time was not a charm, but she stuck the landing with her fourth marriage in 1935 to Carol Case, son of hotelier and author Frank Case. She and Carol remained married until his death in 1978. Josephine Dunn never became a star, despite giving it a really solid go of things. It may have been her voice, or just the type of character she was best suited to playing, but ultimately, despite the predictions of the Paramount Picture School and of the Wampus, it wasn't meant to be. Carol Lincoln First signed in 1926 to do Christie comedies, uncredited, Californian Carol Lincoln was born in November 1903. A dancer and a model, her first real break came in 1927 when she signed with Fox to appear opposite Thunder the Marvel Dog in Wolf Fangs, released later that year. Thunder, a knockoff Rin Tin Tin, got most of the critical attention for the film, his last, which was, as one theater owner put it in the Exhibitor's Herald, a good picture for those who like dogs. In 1928, Carol appeared in some shorts and some feature-length westerns for Fox. Nothing that really ought to get much notice. According to Motion Picture Classic, though, she was getting quite a bit of fan mail. They wrote in their September issue that year, she is acquiring a staggering volume of fan mail from youthful admirers after only two years in pictures, from colleges and other institutions for the sons of gentlemen, letters pour in upon Carol, assuring her that she is the embodiment of every shining ideal of womanhood. 
I don't know if I fully believe that she was getting so many letters. And a hint to why the magazine would embellish the amount and why she ended up on the Wampus Baby Stars list is in the next paragraph of the piece. She lives in a tiny bungalow at the back of a court on a Hollywood side street. After showing you round, she produces her two prize exhibits, a stack of Christmas greeting cards from her unseen correspondence, and her husband. He is a tall, strapping publicity man, answering to the name of Brown. George Barr Brown was a young Wampus, and Carol's first husband. He thought that she deserved the honor of being a baby star, even if it was a hard sell for the rest of us. I've seen Carol Lincoln in a couple of pictures, but I don't remember what she was like, said the bystander gossip column in Picture Play's April 1929 issue, adding, and that's what I should call a completely devastating comment on a player. I think that the bystander was right to be wary, as now freelancing, Carol didn't have a single film released in 1929, and only one the next year. She hadn't retired with her marriage or anything, but it does appear that her father was ill, which may be why she was off screen for such a long time. Carol Lincoln, a wampus baby star of two years ago, is recovering from the effects of a blood transfusion to her father, a retired railroad man, who has been suffering from anemia. It's said in the June 14, 1930 edition of the Exhibitor's Herald. It seems like her career simply couldn't be her main focus, but it didn't take long for Carol to get back into the swing of things, and she actually was working plenty in the years to come usually in low-budget westerns with the likes of Tim McCoy or Tom Tyler, or in bit roles in higher-end pictures. Tom Tyler, by the way, gave Carol a very rousing shout-out in Movies Magazine in November 1933, which I will now read in my best cowboy voice. But let me doff my ten-gallon for a moment to the many pretty ladies whom I have appeared with in countless pictures and who have the stuff of which stardom is made. Take, for instance, Carol Lincoln, one of the most charming and most beautiful girls who appear on the screen. Miss Lincoln has been borrowed from Paramount to appear opposite me in my latest monarch production, War on the Range, which I hope you will be seeing soon. Here is a little lady who rides like a veteran in spite of her youthfulness, who during the film is required to sit in a wagon when her horses run away, and who does so with the calm and poise of the most hardened cow lad. No, not for a moment is the field open alone to men who fight. Gals who dare are equally welcome to the fraternity of the West, where men are men, and girls are heroines. Unfortunately, Carol's niche success in westerns was coming to an end, and her final tiny credited role was in 1934's Charlie Chan's Courage, not a western, a mystery featuring Werner Oland in Yellowface again, his favorite thing. 
though she continued working as an extra for decades. In 1933, Carol divorced her publicity man husband, and in 1936, she married Byron Burt Stevens, a.k.a. Barbara Stanwyck's brother. They were married until his passing in 1964, and they shared a son. Was Carol Lincoln ever a star? No, but she was a trooper. Helen Twelve Trees In late 1928, the writing was on the wall as far as silent films were concerned. Talkies were here to stay, and some established screen personalities were having trouble with the adjustment. New faces and voices were needed, so talent scouts began plucking actors with proven vocal capabilities from the theater scene. This is where Helen Twelvetrees was discovered that year. She was born Helen Marie Jurgens on Christmas Day, 1907, though it's sometimes listed as 1908. From a young age, Helen was artistic, and after graduating high school, she attended a fine arts school before transferring the following year to the famed drama school, the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. While attending the school, she met and married stage actor Clark Twelvetrees in 1927 at 19, adopting his unusual surname. Clark was a deeply troubled young man who abused alcohol, would threaten self-harm and suicide, and was physically and emotionally abusive towards Helen. Helen appeared in several theatrical productions after graduating from the AADA before signing with Fox. The Fox Company has launched their sound film era with a million-dollar plant and a whole host of talent recruited from the spoken drama and the musical shows, reported Pitcher Play in their November 1928 issue, adding that Helen was the ingenue find of the recruitment spree. Fox put her in The Ghost Talks, an all-talking comedy horror, in the lead role, by the way, set for release in late February 1929. So when she was announced as a Wampus Baby star, she had no films out at all. Still, her reputation from the stage preceded her. Buzz was strong about her first few films already in the can. Blue Skies would come out a few weeks later. So no one was up in arms about her inclusion. The Ghost Talks was a bust, however. One major reason being that it had been filmed several months before its release and held back. And in the meantime, sound technologies had continued to improve, so it came across as amateurish in comparison. That's how fast this technology was moving. Another reason the film was a bust for Helen specifically was that the film called for her to speak with a lisp. So the screen debut of a stage performer, hired namely because of her great voice, was tainted. No, sir, Helen doth not lisp read the Damage Control headline in Screenland. Blue Skies, which was a partial sound film and a program feature, low budget, at that, so it failed to do much for Helen either. Fox, somewhat unsurprisingly, even though this was all their fault, quietly chose not to renew her contract. In short order, she was signed by Pathé. The small studio was struggling in 1930, though, which might explain why they were kind of eager to use Helen, 
who for all her theater work was basically untested as one of their primary stars. She would have been relatively cheap, after all. Luckily, though it was a bit of a gamble, betting on Helen was a smart choice. Her third film with them would prove to be her breakout. Her Man was a seedy, sexy, dangerous pre-code drama. Based on the tawdry old ballad of Frankie and Johnny, Her Man has been made into one of the finest talkies ever, wrote the review in Silver Screen. What a cast it has and what performances they give. Helen Twelvetrees as Frankie and Ricardo Cortez staging a great comeback as Johnny the man who done her wrong. Phillips Holmes, just a heartbreaker as the man who leads Frankie to better things. Add one of the greatest fight sequences ever screened. Go yourself, but don't take the children. Helen was given real acting to do and the opportunity to play a less squeaky clean character than before. She may have looked like a passive ingenue, and she did, blonde hair, big eyes, a certain frailty, but Helen was proving herself capable of much more. In Millie, for example, which was released in early 1931, Helen played a woman, Millie, who after being cheated on several times turns to a life of meaningless sex and partying. Then when her own daughter is threatened by a creep, she ends up on trial for murder. In January that same year, Pathé, which as I mentioned had been struggling, was absorbed into RKO as its own production unit. They gave Helen even more censor-skirting projects to star in, like A Woman of Experience, where she played a woman with a scandalous past who becomes a spy, a sexy spy. Most of her performances were tempered by tragedy. She could play the bad girl with a heart that almost always got broken. As Modern Screen put it, she was a performer who knocked your emotions into a cocked hat. Soon, Helen's personal life would spill into the fan magazines in a way that seemed just as melodramatic as her on-screen performances. Things with her husband Clark had never been good, as I mentioned, and she filed for divorce in 1930. Both parties were told that they were not permitted to remarry for a full year, but basically Helen misunderstood the dates and eloped with her second husband, stuntman Frank Jack Woody, one day too early in 1931. When the mistake was realized a couple of weeks later, Helen had to do some damage control publicly, as technically she'd been living in sin. Suddenly, more and more details about her turmoil with Clark had to be revealed. In a profile of Helen in the New Movie magazine in their January 1931 issue, a few months before the elopement, they touch only briefly on the divorce to say that she doesn't wish to discuss, but that friends say she did all she could to stay married. In Modern Screen's September issue, a few months later, they explain how Clark Twelvetrees disappeared for 48 hours on their wedding day to go on a bender, how he drank all the time, how he was physically violent, and how he had thrown himself from a sixth-floor window. This was all true as far as my understanding of events. It's just rare to have it all spelled out like that. Rare and strategic. Jack Woody is positioned as Helen's hero, saving her from the heartbreak that had filled her life, so who could blame them for not waiting to get married? 
the modern screen piece which positioned the crux of Helen's dramatic talents to her real pain, took care to finish with, Yes, Helen Twelve Trees is happy, but I doubt whether all the love and understanding in the world can ever erase the shadow of tragedy that still lingers in her eyes. Just in case you worried she would suddenly lose her spark, you know? Helen and Jack were able to get legally married a few weeks after their first attempt, and all the sympathies and support of the public were on her side. In 1932, she had a string of films that further cemented her as an emotional pre-code heroine who usually got the short end of the stick. Her teary on-screen alter ego wasn't always met with great applause. Helen Twelve Trees suffers and suffers and suffers, to say nothing of the audience, chagrined Screenland about her in Young Bride. Still, she was busy until, well, fate got in the way. Fifty Grand Baby! shouted the picture play headline in their November 1932 issue, when Helen was expecting her son. That was what motherhood would cost her earnings. After she returned to the screen a couple of months after giving birth, Helen had trouble finding her footing. RKO had moved on. A short stint at Paramount didn't wow anyone, and then eventually she landed back at Fox, her very first studio. Helen Twelve Trees. No young actress aroused greater expectations when she appeared on the film Horizon, wrote the new movie magazine in their June 1934 issue. Somehow or other, she never has realized that early promise. The lady with the sad eyes encountered a lot of bad roles, lost her stellar position. Let's hope that her next appearance in the Fox film, All Men Are Enemies, offers a real chance. It didn't. All Men Are Enemies reportedly lost over $200,000 at the box office. Helen's career continued its decline, and by the end of 1935, the only leading roles she could get were in solidly B-movies, if that. Her marriage to Jack Woody hit the skids and the gossip pages. Like in Modern Screen, on the same fatal evening, another one-round punch battle occurred, with Frank Woody, Helen Twelvetree's estranged spouse, the winner. Seems Miss Twelvetree's was emerging from a nightclub with a Mr. Forrest, no relation, when Mr. Woody stepped up and let him have it. If you were smart, you could probably think up something screamingly funny about these three names, but if you're that smart, you won't bother. They divorced in 1936, and by that point, Helen didn't have much control over how her story was told by the media. Not that Helen was being discussed very often by that point anyway. She only worked sporadically over the next couple of years and made her final film in 1939. The following year, Helen sued RKO for $100,000 in damages after they made I'm Still Alive, a film about a temperamental actress and her stuntman husband. Remember, Frank Jack Woody was a stuntman. RKO used her name in press materials and everything, but Helen eventually had to settle for just over a grand. She attempted a return to Broadway, not very successfully, and did other theatrical work, but Helen's screen career was over. 
She had poor health for the rest of her life and passed away in 1958 from an overdose of sedatives. Helen Twelve Trees was a star for a brief period. Various factors, including the birth of her child and the lack of support she found at RKO, meant that her career lacked growth and continuity. But her typecasting, the teary-eyed woman with a life hard-lived, held its own limitations, too. Still, for a time, the Wampus were right. Doris Dawson Born in Nevada in 1905, not 1909, as is sometimes reported, Doris Dawson began what there was of her Hollywood career in 1926 as a hand double. Well, okay, she really got started in bit parts, but her apparently lovely hands quickly got more work than her face did. Use cold cream on your hands every night, says Doris, as quoted in Pitcher Play's February 1928 issue. When you go out, wear gloves. The air hardens and coarsens the skin, particularly when you're riding in a motor car. I admit that I do not wash dishes. The warm, greasy water reddens the hands, and the caustic soap makes them lose their softness. Let the same manicurist treat your nails each week. She will learn their condition, their needs, their frailties. Use a bit of lemon juice to cut the grease if you work in the kitchen sink. Hands cannot be pretty if they are abused. By that point, she was doing some leading lady in low-budget western parts and some Christie comedy shorts, but clearly she still took her hand care seriously. Little Doris Dawson is beginning to get some nice breaks in pictures, reported Motion Picture Classics later in 1928. Doris was signed for a small part in Harry Langdon's new picture in support of Alma Bennett, the leading lady. I don't know just how it happened, but before the picture was half over, Doris was promoted to the feature part. They're pretty proud of her out at First National, where they hold a five-year contract on her services. Things really were a-cooking with Doris at First National. There was the loan-out to Harry Langdon, plus several other featured roles, including Do Your Duty and Naughty Baby. In their review of the last one, the film Spectator noted, There is a young miss in this picture whom I have seen somewhere before, Doris Dawson. I am willing to bet you that somewhere you will see this girl's name in electric lights before so very long. She is not only just a beautiful thing to look at, but she seems to be intelligent. In December 1928, Motion Picture News reported how First National was gearing up for their 1929 production schedule, including their expanding sound department. They added, Obscure players have a better chance of breaking into pictures with the arrival of sound films, it is believed, at the First National Plant. Doris Dawson and James Ford are two players who have been brought forward because of their ability to speak their lines. Put a pin in that one. Well, all the bystander gossip column had to say about Doris was that she was very pretty and their roundup of new Wampus Baby stars, her appearance on that list wouldn't have been too surprising. But while she was busy with releases in the early part of 1929, by May, First National decided not to renew her contract. In 1930, she married vaudevillian Pat Rooney Jr. and officially retired, though she did have a small role in 1934's The Silver Streak after she divorced him. 
It wasn't a big return to films, though, and one has to wonder why it all went so wrong so quickly. The general consensus on today's internet is that her voice was considered to be too grating for sound. But I actually couldn't find an example of a critic during her time complaining about her voice, probably because she barely did any talkies where she had substantial screen time. But of course, that may have been by design if her voice was so grating. Anyway, something stood in Doris Dawson's way, whatever it was, proving the wampus very much wrong. Sally Blaine It's amazing the way whole families of sisters are getting into the movies nowadays. Sally Blaine and her sisters offer the most striking example. There are three of them working in films, wrote Picture Play, in the November 1927 edition, introducing the young sisters. The eldest, Polly Ann, the youngest, Loretta, and in the middle, Sally Blaine, birth name Elizabeth Young. Sally was born in July 1910 in Colorado, but the family moved a lot, and by the time she was seven, her mother Gladys had set the family up in Hollywood. As children, they all appeared in bit roles before taking a break to focus on their schooling. They only focused for a little bit, and by late 1926, the 16-year-old Sally had signed with Paramount. Her first credited role was 1927's Casey at the Bat, and her first credited role with a name followed soon after in the western Shooting Irons. Her little sister Loretta was really hot on her heels, getting her first credited teenage roles in 1928, and with also working in films, the comparisons came quickly, and not always in Sally's favor. She is less of a beauty than her sisters, inclined, perhaps, to be almost too plump. Picture play said of Sally in a feature called Three Young Gals in their November 1928 issue. But if she is the least beautiful, she makes up for it by having the most personality. She is roly-poly, jolly, full of fun and pep, the friendliest of the three and the easiest to know. Oh my god, imagine being a teenage girl and reading that about yourself. I'd crawl into a hole and never return to society again, that's mortifying. At least, her career was going well. She ended up doing seven films in 1928, and though her contract with Paramount had not been extended, she was quickly signed by RKO. When it came time to vote for the Wampus Baby Stars list of 1929, it was reported that Sally was the starlet who got the very most votes from the Wampus members. The bystander gossip column lamented that it didn't seem fair that Loretta and Sally got on the list when Pollyann didn't, it would have been a wasted entry if she never did much. Sally was quoted in Photoplay's March 1930 issue, perhaps explaining why. Polly Ann couldn't get ahead because of her mouth, said Sally. You see, her teeth were crooked and her lips were too big, so I insisted that she go to a doctor and have an operation. So she did, and she's getting lots more work now. Now I'm imagining being Polly Ann and also having to crawl into a hole to never return. Maybe Sally was being a little, well, helpful in a mean girl's kind of way because she was feeling self-conscious about how things were going in her own career. She'd been busy in 1929 in films like Tan Legs 
and opposite Rudy Valley in The Vagabond Lover, but Sally's roles hadn't really grown in prominence. In 1930, she had just one feature released, The Little Accident, playing the second female lead. Then she signed with Universal to play the girl part in a two-reeler series, The Leather Pushers, about a boxer, which feels like a career regression, frankly. Things continued on like this, secondary roles, a few thankless shorts. By the early 1930s, her sister Loretta had undeniably outdone Sally, and much of her publicity referenced their familial connection. Most of the stories about Sally Blaine begin and end with the fact that she is the sister of lovely Loretta Young, wrote Screenland's August 1933 issue. Of course she is, but that's not all. She is a Hollywood belle, a clever actress, a beauty. The piece went to some lengths to try to explain why Sally's career had been so underwhelming, the consensus being that while she herself was just great, she hadn't taken her work seriously enough in the past. The promise to change never really materialized. In 1935, Sally married director Norman Foster, having previously been quite publicly linked with a number of high-profile gentlemen, including crooner Russ Colombo, briefly Gary Cooper, uh, various heirs to things, Gene Markey, Lou Ayers, Clarence Brown, William Bakewell, Cesar Romero, as a beard, at least one polo star and one earl. She was once quoted later in life as saying, While Loretta was concentrating on her career, I had all the bows. She and Norman were for real, though, and had two children and stayed together until his death in 1976. Sally kept working throughout the 1930s and even did some TV in the 1950s, but she remained in supporting roles for the entirety of her career. Much like the Screenland piece said, Sally asserted that despite wanting some more important parts at various times, she simply didn't have the drive or ambition that her sister Loretta had. Perhaps the Wampus should have only put one sister on their list, as Sally Blaine, though a working actress and a known figure for a long time in Hollywood, seems to never have had the drive to make it to the star level. You don't think I'd forget Sally Blaine's little sister, do you? Loretta Young will be ready for her close-up in two weeks' time, as per my new every-other-Tuesday schedule. If you've liked what you've been hearing and you want to support the Old Movie Lady podcast, leaving a review or a rating wherever you listen is a big help. Please subscribe, spread the word. You can follow me on social media. It's at the Old Movie Lady. Thank you for listening. As always, I have been your host, Marg, the Old Movie Lady, an unholy mess of a girl.